welcome tonight. I just want to announce before we start. Is this working? Yeah? Okay, good. Um, down the back, there is the, the church directory. It's on really big sheets of paper. So the idea is that uh, this week and next week, and next week, if you want to head down the back there, check your name, check your photograph. If it's a really ugly picture, arrange to have another one taken. Um, if the address is wrong, the phone number's wrong, change them on the sheet there and then initial it. If you don't initial it, then it'll be removed. And it won't be in the next directory. This is just an opportunity so that everybody who is in the directory wants their name and number and all that sort of stuff in there. So please check it on the way out if your name or number is or isn't in there. So please check it anytime this month. Right? The second announcement is just a warm welcome to everybody. It's great to have everybody here. And um, I trust that as we go through now and just end off our time looking at the book of Obadiah, that it might be an encouragement to you and to your faith. We're going to be reading from verse 17 in Obadiah. It was our fifth and final week in this book. Verse 17. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance, it will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come now and have a look at this passage. We ask that by your spirit you might encourage us by your word that we might know that our future is sure and secure as was the promise to your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've gone through the book of Obadiah, most of it has, it seemed, been uh, a chastisement, a judgment upon the people of Edom, Esau's descendants, Jacob's brother's kids, who treated Jacob's kids, Israel, badly. And they rejected God's promises, they rejected who God was in the world, and they treated the people of Israel poorly. And we looked at how that happened, and we talked about it over the last couple of weeks, and we saw that they, they had pride in their hearts, and it was shown in the way that they treated the Israelites, and God's judgment came upon them, his sure and very clear judgment. And last week, we looked at those verses 15 and 16. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They'll drink and drink and drink and be as if they had never been. God's judgment will come upon the nations and they will be destroyed. Yet this was written by a prophet from Judah. Someone who was speaking to God's people. And yes, he was prophesying against Edom. But the message that was in here, in many ways, is for the people of Israel to comfort them. Believe it or not. And, and much of his prophecy, if you like, for them comes in this last section, the ones that we read today, to show them that there was hope 
for the future, that there was certainty, that there was deliverance, that there was an end to what was coming on. We want to have a look at that promise, that future promise of what God promised them. I don't know about you, but as I look at the news each week, it seems to be the same. And as you read through the various stories, they seem just to be repeating on and on. In many ways, nothing seems to change. Nothing seems to get better. I was talking to someone this week and they said, yes, there's been less people killed in wars this century than last century. Well, we've only had 12 years. There's time. And if you go back and look at history, there just seems to be this cycle. You wonder, when's it ever going to end? And the people of Israel were like that. They kept getting oppressed. And yet they had the promises of God from the past that he would deliver them that he would provide for them salvation. And this is what the prophet Obadiah is saying to them. There will come a time, know for certain, that there is an end. The promises that God made to Abraham will come about. You will be a blessing and you'll be blessed and you'll be a blessing to all the nations and this will happen. God wants to make it very, very clear to them. We want to go through there. I've only got four points. You'll be happy to know. Unfortunately, I have to split them in twos. Because he, <laughs> it's not going to take that long, trust me. Here's where you, this is theology now. We're going to step out of exegesis for a second, step into theology. When, it, when I came to the church, they kind of asked me a little bit about my theology. They asked all sorts of questions. Number one, view of creation. And, and then they went further on to other sorts of things, how I saw the Bible and, you know, all those sorts of things. One of the questions they asked was what I thought about the end times. And I don't know if I should give you my answer now, but I said, well, most of the time... I'm one thing, and the other part of the time, I'm another thing. It depends on which passage you read. I'm not really honed down. I'm a sort of a pre-mill, post-trib, pre-mill, pre-trib, pre-mill, etc., etc., etc. I don't get all fussed about it. Because it depends sometimes on which passage you read. Unfortunately, this is one of those passages. Because to Israel, this was a promise of God for them as a nation. Now, Good New Testament people, we're really easy about this. We just spiritualize it and take it out of Israel and make it for the church in some sort of spiritual realm, right? That's what we generally do when we read these passages because that's how we can apply it to us. Unless you're a Jew here, you have to kind of apply it that way. Otherwise, you know, the only thing you get from this whole passage is God keeps his promises. And so as we look at it, and I think it's valid to do so because Paul does the same thing and the early church definitely did this in their thinking, that those promises that God gave to his people that had not yet been fulfilled were promises that were still for all God's people throughout all time. And yet you do have this sense as you read through this, and particularly as we've looked at the beginning of it, that this is talking about what's going to happen to God's people Israel. And so here's the theology part. When I stand on this side, which will be occasionally, I am going to be a millennialist, a premillennialist. All right. In other words, that there will be some time in history on this earth a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, and that God's people will be a part of that, and particularly His people Israel. And as you read through these passages of the Old Testament, there is this constant barrage, if you like, from God, that one day, 
I will bring my people together and Zion, Jerusalem will be the center of, of the world. And peoples will come to Jerusalem because God will be reigning there through his servant David, through Christ. And that all nations will come and that the Israelites will rule. Paul talks about this in Romans. He says that there will come a time, don't forget, God's people are his elect, his chosen. And even though they have walked away, that one day they will come back. And that God has his point and his place with me. You read the book of Revelation, you get that idea as well. Right? So if I'm standing on this side, I'm a premillennialist. Right? If I'm on this side, or in the middle, I'm kind of an amillennialist or a pamillennialist. Either there is no millennium, or I don't care. And so we're looking at how this applies to us as people. If I get it mixed up, someone tell me that I'm standing on the wrong side, okay? For those theologians. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. Whew. Which one should you be? Well, it depends to me which passage you're reading. All right? But as you think it all through, if you're really interested in that stuff, have a talk with someone else. Um, anyone here really interested in that? Go see Michael. Two folks. All right? Feel free to have a chat with them. Okay, verse 17. God is going to keep his promises. He's just said that the whole, all of the nations will be destroyed, that there will come a time, however, where there a remnant of people will be saved. On Mount Zion, some who escape. There are going to be those who escape the judgment of God. There is going to come a time when God draws together his people, a holy people, his redeemed people. He is going to bring Israel together, back to Jerusalem, and they will be restored and the kingdom will be restored and it will be a remnant yes because he has judged and he has brought discipline on his people but he has those who he has chosen this hasn't happened yet so sometime in the future there hasn't been a time in history like this and so if we read through the new testament we read through the book of revelation it tells the story how there will come a time when israel will return to the lord and a remnant that Israel will be restored and brought back together. God will save his people. He'll make them into a holy nation. He will deliver them. But there's also the understanding as we read through this, see this is how I'm doing it, right? that there's a spiritual salvation, that there is a redeemed people. The understanding, <laughs> this is going to get scary, even over here is that these are the people who have been brought back, who have been saved, who have been made holy, as it says in this. On Mount Zion will be delivered, it will be holy, that Jacob will possess his inheritance. But we also understand that for us, and particularly as we look back on the promises of the Old Testament in the light of Christ, that all of these promises are very real for God's people. We know that there are a remnant of people chosen by God who will escape this all-encompassing judgment of God upon people for what they have done. That there will come a time when we stand before the judgment throne of Christ when we, the redeemed, know that we stand in a safe and secure place in the person of Christ. And therefore, what we've remembered in communion tonight, we can hold on to. God's promise is that there will come a time when God's people will be saved. And that not just saved in the sense that we're saved now, which is a very real salvation, but we are set apart. We're in that place where we can live and breathe in the presence of God. 
a holy people. Jeremiah chapter 31 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's a promise for the people of Israel. But as we look at it, we know that this is a promise that is ours in Christ Jesus. There will come a time and it's already being ushered in. We looked at this when we did Hebrews. It's already being ushered in and that we have the spirit who lives within us, who teaches us his law. But we look forward to the time when there is no sin. When we're consecrated, where, as it says in this passage, it will be holy. What does it mean that it will be holy? It means to be set apart. It means to be consecrated for God. But I think there's a little bit more to it than that. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 1 says this. Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. Jerusalem, the holy city, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. And there's this understanding that Jerusalem will be holy because everyone within it is not going to suffer defilement. And in this case of Obadiah, people coming from outside and spoiling God's city anymore. And there's this promise to the people of Israel that there will come a time when he will bring them back, that they will know God because he will live in their midst and they will not suffer from people overrunning them. They will not have the defilement going in amongst them because all who are there will know God. And then there's the promise that we take away as well. That we know there will come a time when we don't have to come back on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, confessing our sin to God. One day after we have been truly, completely, the sanctification is finished, if you like. There is no more sin. We live with him. We exist in a world where there is no defilement anymore. We'll be a holy people. This is something we look forward to. I know that when I come and I confess my sin, sometimes I say, how long? How long do I have to keep doing this for? Why aren't I right yet? I've been a Christian for 30 years plus. One day, his promise will be there and we will live with him and we'll be a holy people. A remnant of people will escape this salvation because they are God's chosen people. A remnant will escape this judgment because they are found in Christ. The salvation of each is in Christ. As we know him, we will be saved. I don't know if you were here last week, but as you think upon this thing, know this, application for you. The world isn't just going to keep going around in cycles. There will come an end point. There will come a finish. God's promises will happen. He will draw all things to himself. Know this, there is only one safe place to stand. That's in Christ. 
It's to know him. It's the only place of deliverance. On Mount Zion will be deliverance. Other than that, all the nations will drink and drink until they are no more. That's the first one. A remnant will be saved. Second point, verse 18. Jacob will be fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. There's two things in here. <laughs> they both start with an arc, so I kind of figured it worked. Did you see? Remnant will be saved. This one's the same. There's going to be a reversal of fortune, if you like, in the sense that Esau was oppressing and destroying Israel. Wrong side. And Israel will overcome and destroy Edom. There will come a time when God promises that things will be made right for his people. That things will be put in perspective. That the righteous will flourish and that the sinful will perish. He promises that, that there will be a reversal of fortune. But he also promises in this that there will be a reunification of God's people. He talks here about Joseph and Jacob. And he says that they will be one, if you like. There's this idea that comes through, particularly if this is your idea of Israel, premillennialism, right? that there will come a time when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are joined together again, that somehow out of all the nations they will be come back together and Israel will be right it comes out in here in terms of Jacob will be fire and Joseph a flame. Jacob is a reference to the southern kingdom. Joseph is a reference to the northern kingdom. Ezekiel says this in, verse, in chapter 37. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Well, it actually says the word of the Lord came to me, but I wanted you to know who it was talking to. Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Joseph, that is, to Ephraim, and all the Israelites associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. When your people ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any other of their offences. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding. I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. There is going to come a time when things are reversed. Where they have gone out, they will now be brought back together. Where they've been broken asunder, they will be put together. God's people will be reun reunified. But he also says that those who have been doing the oppressing will now come under oppression, will be destroyed. We know that God promises that one day he will draw his people, his sheep to himself, out of all the nations, out of all the places where they are, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of culture, 
those who are found in Christ will be brought into one people, that the Gentiles will be grafted into the Israelites, that God's people will be one and that they will worship him. And that will happen for all eternity. And there's a promise that comes with that, that everything that has gone in the past, all the oppression and persecution will be done away with, it will be burnt up, it will be cast aside and thrown away. But instead, God's people who have been suffering under persecution will become his heirs and they will reign forever. And we have this idea there's not only a reversal of what has been happening in this sinful world, but that God will bring his people and make them one under him. This is his promise. This is his promise to us. It's not just that they're going to come together, but he says that both of them will be a fire. They will be powerful. They will not just be joined together, but God's power will be amongst them. You can read a whole lot of passages in the New Testament talk about the way that God empowers his people and strengthens them, not only as they go through this life, but as they go into the next as his children. And you have this picture as well of God's people who will come back from being weak, downtrodden exiles to be those who are powerful enough to cause destruction against those who have been destroying them. This is God's promise, that his people will be reunified and there will be reversal of fortunes, that the blessings that he promised them will come about and will be fulfilled. And aside, just for those of you who are in this camp, there's one little difficulty in this passage. It says... And they will set him on fire, that's Esau, and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. Problem is, there aren't any survivors from Esau. So if this is looking to the future, who does that mean? There are some people in this camp, God bless them, who say that Edom will be restored. That sometime in the future, all the nations that he promised would be destroyed will suddenly pop up again. And there will be people who say, I'm Edomites. And that's going to happen. May happen, can't say. All right? But that's, that's an issue. But we do know that however it works, God promises that he will bring his people all together and that they can look forward to re- reaping the blessings that he's promised them. How does that encourage us? The first thing that we talked about, we get encouraged, the fact that we can escape the judgment that's coming being in Christ Jesus. Now we take away the hope that is in us, that he will make things so that we live in that blessing that he's promised us. We have an surety in the New Testament that now as we go through this life, living for Christ, in Christ, in the world, that we will have suffering and persecution and pain and death as we live for him. And we live in a broken world where we're surrounded by sin, so there's war and there's enmity and there's all these other things. This is his promise that that's all going to be switched. That there will come a time when there aren't those things that tear us apart. That we have that hope for the future, that we will live amongst each other, with each other, in the presence of God, without a tear, without pain, without suffering, with blessing continually. Everyone thinks that would be really boring, but that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? I think it's more fantastic the older you get. It'd be just great to have that to look forward to. It's not just this constant cycle that goes round and round, this wave of ups and downs, but it's a continual up 
as you have the blessings of God and he brings them into your life. Point number three, verse 19 and 20. People from the Negev will occupy the mountain of Esau and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Back in Genesis chapter 15, God promised Abraham, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to him, Your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I practice that. There is a promised inheritance that God's people will receive. There hasn't been a time in history yet where Abraham's descendants that it talks about in terms of Israel and Judah have ever fully occupied that land that God promises. And Obadiah makes the promise, and you can draw the map out. I'm not going to do it for you because I think you've forgotten the map that I used to draw beforehand. Right? But each of these different groups are moving a little bit out to fill the borders that God had promised. And God promised, that which I've promised you, that inheritance which I said was yours, you will have. Know that there's a certainty here. The Lord has spoken. You will have your inheritance. You'll be brought back and I will give you everything I promised. Judah and Israel were separated they are being harassed on every side. If Obadiah is written early on, then there's still a whole lot of persecution and exile to come. If it's written around the time of Jeremiah, Israel has already been destroyed and Judah is about to go off into captivity. This is God's promise to say, know this, I have your future, my remnant, the people I'm going to save in my hands. I will bring you back and I will keep my promises. I won't let you down. I won't let you go. I will do all that I've promised. For us, as we look forward, we, we just have to go to the New Testament and read a few of the passages. I've just picked out a few here. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. There is an inheritance here in participating in the glory of God. In a creation that isn't frustrated, that isn't torn apart. This is something that's a part of our inheritance as children of God. And we look forward to that. Galatians chapter 4 says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you're his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's children. God's child, and since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. There is an inheritance that you will receive. 
that one day will be yours as a child of God. We have this opportunity to call him Father. And all that is Christ is ours as co-heirs. Ephesians chapter 1 says, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you were believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love of all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And on and on. And you can go through and study what is our inheritance in Christ Jesus and there's all sorts of things. The one that confuses me the most, so that's the only one I thought I'd share with you because, hey, that's the most fun, is reading in that last one, one, besides the glory that we have in God, we have the Holy Spirit who says that we will receive and we can be certain of that. And in that whole conversation that's there in the one in Ephesians, there's this talk about our inheritance in God's holy people. One of the things that Jesus gets is us. So part of our inheritance is each other. Does that please you? One day each of us as holy people are part of our inheritance. We become one family. A one perfect family. Isn't that something to look forward to? Tend to look at the people around you. They're a part of your inheritance in Christ Jesus. Yeah, some people are frowning. They'll be perfect then, it's cool. But that's only a part of it. We have this, this whole concept of everything that God has promised in Scripture. Go back and read the Scriptures. We talk about the glory of God. We talk about his wisdom with us, his presence with us. God himself the whole universe, ours in Christ Jesus. And he says that one day we will receive that promised inheritance. And the hope that we have is that we receive it is because of the Spirit who lives within us. Know this, that you can escape the wrath of God and you can have your salvation. A remnant will be saved. That our fortunes will be reversed. That we will be reunited as God's people. We can take comfort in that. But know this, that everything that God has promised in all of its fullness will be yours. Health. Peace. Glory. Fulfillment. Contentment. Blessing. Each other. These are things that we can hold on to and look forward to. That no matter what goes on in life, that in Christ Jesus you can be assured that we have these things as we know the spirit who lives within us is that seal that God will keep his promises just as he's made this promise to the people of Israel so he makes his promise to us that we escape his judgment and we receive all his blessing as his children lastly verse 21 deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's he promises that his people will not only be reunified, restored, receive their inheritance, but they will rule. And we read through the, the Old Testament how the God's people Israel will be rulers. 
that the other nations will come to them, that they will govern in so many ways. He promises it's not just simply a matter that you have peace, but I will raise you up and you will be rulers under God and the kingdom will be the Lord's. There's this promise. And so if you hold a premillennial view that there will be Israel restored, that Jesus will come and reign in Jerusalem on this earth, that he will have those who are his people who will rule under him. And, and for, for the people of Israel, this is a great promise that they know that the kingdom that was promised, the Davidic king, will rule, that God will keep his promise, and that they will have a place and a position in his kingdom. We're very Western. We don't like thinking that we might want to have a position of responsibility or governing. We think that's not humble. All right? But that's just the strange Western world we live in because deep down in our hearts we keep seeking that. All right? We keep seeking that. And, and there's nothing wrong if we have been gifted and, and given responsibility by God and he asks us to actually live in that responsibility. And he promises that his people under him will have a position of responsibility to wisely govern his people. And they look forward to that, the fact that they will have that position in his kingdom. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, it says this, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewable things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he goes to say the same thing. So not only is it a promise, but Jesus also later on in his ministry, at his beginning and his end, makes this promise. What do we take away from that? God just doesn't save us. He lifts us up. We're part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God. It's something that we don't talk a lot about in, in the Christian faith. But there's this promise that God will give us reward and responsibility. That it's not just going to be endlessly playing harps. I don't understand how it's all going to work, which is why I'm going to be really, really short on this point. But there's this idea as you read through the scriptures that God has an ongoing purpose for us in his kingdom as we live under his authority an ongoing purpose to live as his responsible people, perfectly living as he's called us to live. I, I actually take great joy away from that as I think about it. I just think that aimless wandering and keeping asking Moses questions and all of that for the rest of my life, chit-chatting with the person next to me. Unless there's a good library... I'm not sure how long I can put up with that. I get bored pretty easily. 
But to know that I'm, I'm going to be put in a position where God wants to continue, not only to bless me, but to use me for his glory's sake, is an amazing thought. That without sin in the world, he is still going to take his people and he's going to bless them and raise them up and give them responsibility in his kingdom. Things that, that he might do that might praise their name. And I have no idea how that's all going to work out. But to me, that's an encouragement to me as I look forward to the future. That I know for all eternity under God, we can reign and rule with him in this universe that he's made or in the new universe that he brings together. And that's an amazing and wonderful thought. So take it away that the hope you look forward to is not kind of like the finish and you step into an eternity of walking around willow trees and patting white things. Eh? Listening to soft classical music. God has a purpose for all of us to continue to glorify him forever. And that's an amazing thought that he's going to save us, he's going to restore us, he's going to bless us, and then he's going to keep using us for his glory's sake. That was the promise to Israel and that's the promise for us. And I encourage you, as you go through this week, to continue to look forward to that hope. As you go through difficult times, look forward to the promises that he's given to you. As you go through those terrible times of even oppression, loneliness, sadness, sin, that in Christ Jesus he'll save you, he'll restore you, he'll lift you up and he'll continue to use you. And he'll do it now. But there will come a time in history when he wraps all things up. And he will do that as he has promised. Because this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your prophecies through your servant Obadiah. I pray that we as your children might learn from them, be encouraged by them, and that we might give you praise and glory for all that you promised to do for us and through us in Christ, that you might be praised and glorified. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.